today on the Energy Podcast. We need global consensus on a number of key issues if we're actually to deliver on a 1.5 degree target. Researchers have estimated that a full implementation of Article 6 can mobilize up to 250 billion US dollars per year by 2030 and up to 1 trillion by 2050. We are the next generation of people who will be the heads of state, the next CEOs of different companies or leading organizations and where many of us are energy entrepreneurs. What it's going to actually take in order to successfully deliver the energy transition is trillions of dollars of investment and the vast majority of that will come from the private sector. The UN Global Climate Conference COP27 has drawn to a close and world leaders and delegates from more than 190 countries gathered in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. A whole day of talks was dedicated to the decarbonisation challenge, with leaders from public and private sectors discussing the pathways and the strategies to decarbonise industrial sectors, including energy, concrete and steel. And we've covered some of these topics in this series already. So if you've missed any of those episodes, please know you can download them all for free wherever you get your podcasts. This year's COP came just over a year since COP26 was held in Glasgow and took place against the backdrop of a global energy and cost of living crisis. And due to its location, there was a firm expectation that Africa would be central to the discussion. Hello, I'm Julia Streets and today on the Energy Podcast 1.5 and What's Next? So in this episode, we're getting a first-hand review of the summit because all of my guests today attended COP27. Coming up, you'll hear from Eduarda Zogby, a senior advisor at Student Energy, and Andrea Bozzani, the International Policy Director at AITA, the International Emissions Trading Association. But first, let me introduce you to Rebecca Shirley, the Director of Research, Data and Innovation at the World Resources Institute Africa. Rebecca, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And joining Rebecca is Susan Shannon, Shell's VP of Policy and Advocacy. And Susan, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. It's great to be here, Julia. So Rebecca, I'm going to come to you first. Could you describe what this COP has really been like? For me, I think the COP has pivoted and evolved from a space primarily for negotiations and the scientists that inform those negotiations to a space that is now almost what I would describe as a marketplace. There is far more of a role of non-state actors in delivering climate solutions. So what I saw this year um, was definitely the space surrounding the negotiation space being extremely active. A lot of pledges, a lot of partnerships being announced and being formed while we were there. A lot of activity from cities, from indigenous communities, from youth activists and, and, and youth entrepreneurs. So yes, it's big and it's hectic, but almost I feel like that it's becoming hopefully what is a more inclusive space to both non-state actors and also to global South actors as well, who are, of course, the most impacted by climate change. Well, it's interesting here you talk about the community, about the collaboration as well. But I also heard a, another story about oil and gas companies not being very welcome and in some cases, indeed, even being uninvited. Uh, Susan, can I bring you in here? Because uh, tell me, why was Shell there? And what was your personal role at COP27? Yeah, thanks, Julia. As Rebecca said, COP, or the Conference of Parties, is is primarily 
a intergovernmental set of negotiations and it's evolved over years. And today there's a huge representation from the private sector. We were there to listen, especially to listen to those voices who we don't hear every day in our industry. This year we brought our incoming CEO so that he had an opportunity to really listen to some of those climate voices and engage, as I said, with people from, from outside our sector. We also have a role in terms of looking at innovative coalitions. So this year we had lots of meetings around how we can help with energy access. And of course, there's a huge amount of work in the run-up to COP. So contributions that we might make through industry associations, for example, AITA, a lot of that happens in the run-up to COP. That's helpful to understand that. And particularly when we're thinking about your role at COP27, do you see that companies like Shell actually have any negotiation power? We were really there as Shell in a capacity to listen. Formally, the negotiations are between governments. But of course, what it's going to actually take in order to successfully deliver the energy transition is trillions of dollars of investment. And the vast majority of that will come from the private sector. And companies like ours have a huge amount of experience of how big projects work, how the energy system works, and of course, the capital. So I do believe that our industry, together with the finance industry, together with NGOs, do need to be there to crack this nut. And if I reflect, there, there has been criticism of the fossil fuel industry for the past 20 years and their role in lobbying. Today, emissions continue to go up. So we do somehow need to do something different. And I think that bringing all of these forces together is really the only way we're going to unlock the, the money and the potential. So, Rebecca, tell me, how much of a role do conferences like these have in fighting climate change? We need global consensus on a number of key issues if we're actually to deliver on a 1.5 degree target. Of course, pushing uh, pressure and keeping the pressure on our targets for decarbonisation But then, of course, adaptation and creating mechanisms for support of countries that are being impacted by climate change uh, on adaptation. And then then thirdly, on loss and damage um, in terms of funding for loss and damage and technical assistance, so on and so forth. This level of activity at the global scale really does require uh, consensus building. And Susan, I wonder if I could bring in your thoughts here. I mean... Rebecca was talking earlier about the loss and damage fund. And, you know, despite reaching a landmark deal on that, I wonder if you could please just explain a bit more for the listeners what the loss and damage fund is. But also, um, there have been some criticisms about failing to agree any other new targets on reducing emissions. And I wonder whether this is a sign that these conferences are failing. So first of all, on loss and damages, up until now, there was agreement that the finances that have been committed under Paris that would go to the developing world could be spent on mitigation and adaptation. But up until now, there was no clarity that they could be spent on addressing the impacts that countries are seeing today from climate change. So that is what loss and damages is all about. And there has been significant progress in principle on that point. But this COP was really about implementation. So 
we have targets. Countries need to continue to raise their ambition. But more importantly than that is the actual delivery, particularly to 2030 when emissions need to have. And that implementation needs to happen on the from countries, from the private sector, from the finance sector. And we really need to accelerate those technologies that we know are there, but not at scale yet. So, so Rebecca, I mean, the World Resources Institute, uh, as you were looking ahead of COP27, said that the its success will be measured on two very clear goals. One being solidarity and the second accountability. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what was meant there and you know, how do you think COP27 measured up against those goals? So what we mean by solidarity there is solidarity with those countries most vulnerable to and directly impacted by uh, climate change, already experiencing significant climate impacts today. I'm calling in from Nairobi, Kenya, where we are in the midst or were in the midst of a very severe uh, drought. And uh, similarly for many Eastern African countries or Horn of Africa countries. And so um, the solidarity indicator was how well are we going to do um, in terms of standing by those countries that need the financing for adaptation and also need to be compensated for losses and damages. So obviously there was some progress made there. Lots more to be done and the financing that will be needed for adaptation and loss and damage, obviously much beyond the scale of what was committed, but, uh, but progress was definitely made. On accountability, what we're talking about here is what Susan was just mentioning, uh, our targets and making sure that we meet the targets. We are currently very far off track of even a two degree Celsius alignment. And it's not just about coal. Our oil and gas use also continues to be very high. Uh, Julia, just a quick start for you. Over the last decade, while we've increased year on year finance directed to uh, climate solutions, whether those be adaptation carbon emissions through renewables, you know, build, efficient buildings, transportation, and so on. We reached somewhere about US $632 billion in 2020. $632 billion, right? So, so just over half a trillion dollars. On fossil fuels, we're still spending $850 billion annually. So that means that as a global community, what we're spending on fossil fuels today in 2022, 2023, is still trumping what we spend on climate. And so that's what we mean by accountability. It's, it's mind-boggling in the words of our own CEO at WRI that we still don't have very concrete language on phase-out of fossil fuels and what equity in that phase-out of production will look like. So this, I think, is where we perhaps miss the mark and we'll need to see much more done next year. So, Susan, I'm curious, you know, the, the dynamics of the world have shifted and the question of energy security is very much at the forefront of many people's minds. Love to get your thoughts on that. Energy security is critical and, and has become even more critical this year. It, in some ways, as much as climate, is now driving the discussion. And that doesn't matter. As long as we are moving towards very fast decarbonisation, it doesn't matter what the motives are. But what I would say is really important is that if we don't have energy security, we will not be able to deploy at scale some of the solutions we need. So that is really critical for every part of the world. And we will need some continued investment in existing technologies, including fossil fuels, in order to allow us to have that base stability from which we can really drive the uptake at scale of renewables. So, Rebecca, would you agree with that? To some extent. 
let's not pretend that we got to this situation by accident. We knew decades ago about what an overdependence on gas, especially in Europe, where it's used for heating purposes. We knew decades ago um, what the impacts of that would be, what the what the risks were there, um, and chose and chose and made choices. We chose a path. So as long as energy security does not become a narrative for continued investment in fossil fuels at the detriment of faster decarbonization, that's understandable. But I think one of the challenges that Africa energy stakeholders have, I hear this all the time from from local governments is, but we're being told not to develop resources for local use at the same time as European countries are here securing resources for their use in the name of energy security. And that then makes the trust issue, the solidarity issue become really difficult to navigate. I'd like to turn the conversation on a little step further, if I may, and this relationship between climate and nature. Now, the conference also included a one day committed to this topic, Biodiversity Day. And uh, as we look ahead to COP15, I wondered what your reflections were on the relationship between the two. Susan. Over the last one to two years, the link between a number of issues has really become clear, no more so than in the biodiversity space. So nature, climate, environment are all clearly part of the same challenge now. And it's great to see the focus on this. And we expect that over the next couple of weeks, we will see some sort of a global framework on biodiversity emerging. So similar to what we've seen on on climate. And Rebecca, if I can ask you about your reflections on biodiversity day. The link between nature and climate becomes clearer and clearer every year, as Susan has mentioned. These are actually two sides of the same coin. So as we're talking about mitigation earlier, one of the challenges, at least for us here on the continent in Africa, is that most of our emissions, albeit very, very small relative to global, do come from deforestation and from food. And so cutting emissions from deforestation and from agricultural productivity is really critical. But on the flip side of that very same coin, our forests and our food systems are the foundations of adaptive capacity. Let's look ahead to COP28 next year, which will be held in the United Arab Emirates. What I'd love to hear is your thoughts on why this will be so significant and what needs to happen between then and now. Susan, I'm coming to you first and then uh, Rebecca, love your thoughts. On a very practical note, next year we'll see a global stock take. So that is looking at where we have got to versus all of the commitments. And I expect that that will show an enormous gap. And hopefully that is a moment for rebuilding momentum. So that is the first thing that practically needs to happen between now and COP28, the global stock take and check in on where we are. The second thing is implementation, implementation, implementation. And if you look at some of the legislation, in Europe, the Fit for 55, in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act, and many other pieces of legislation everywhere. They need to be implemented so that the investment can flow and we start to see the projects. The third piece is the just transition. The discussion around that needs to mature and is maturing so that there are very concrete actions, understandings, and almost KPIs, key performance indicators for both the public and private sector before we come back to COP28 next year. Rebecca, would you agree with that? Is that where you think we should be focusing or are there other areas that you'll be 
paying particular heed to. Those, and I will add uh, something else as well. We must remember that for the continent of Africa, which has contributed very little to this climate challenge that we're all faced with, the agenda and the priority continues to be development. And, and actually, the development agenda is what will give us the best foundation for adapting to our climate-impacted world. There will not be very much that we can do to adapt to climate change when we're still with 650 million persons without energy access, um, less than 5% irrigated land across the continent, food insecurity, millions of people living on less than a dollar a day. So development continues to be the primary uh, agenda. There is no reason that an African development trajectory must be antithetical to decarbonization or to to a clean energy agenda. And so what we saw this year, you know, countries like Kenya announcing um, plans on green fertilizer, um, the Africa Green Hydrogen Council, the number of just transitions plans, the Aquafund, Urban Water Resilience Fund, more and more commitments like these and, and partnerships like these that demonstrate what a linkage between a development-oriented path that gives us the foundation for adaptation, um, but that is in line with a low-carbon trajectory, I think we're also going to be looking for support on these so that we're really driving down on action. Rebecca Shirley, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And Susan Shannon, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Our next guest is Eduardo Zogby. She spoke to us from COP where she was on the ground representing the youth-led organisation Global Student Energy. Eduardo, thank you so much for finding the time to speak to us. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here with you today. I'm really fascinated to understand what's your day-by-day experience been like at COP and what have you been involved in? COPs have grown bigger and bigger with time and I think that here in Sham el-Sheikh in the middle of the desert, it has been a, a, a much bigger COP than I've ever seen in my life. As a representative of a youth-led organization, which is Global Student Energy, has currently more than 50,000 people in their network, present in more than 100 countries. We're here to really um, advocate for the participation of youth in decision-making processes, but also bringing youth perspectives from the energy sector. We're here to discuss the future of work and the importance of young people being here, not just for one speaking engagement, but actually being continuously engaged in the process of, uh, of policy making for our countries, but also um, for, for the energy sector as a whole. And how important is it that voices of younger generations are heard at events like this? I think that from a youth perspective, we always advocate for our importance at the decision making table because we are the next generation of people who will be the heads of state, the next, you know, CEOs of different companies or like leading organizations and where many of us are energy entrepreneurs. One uh, representative from Djibouti was telling me he's printing corals to replace the corals that are bleaching in Djibouti. And he's trying to fundraise for that solution, which is, you know, I've never heard anyone do that. We also heard about um, uh, an improved cook stove that is ethanol based. I also have not heard of ethanol being like so important for transforming waste to energy. So some of these solutions are, you know, already ready to go and we just need, you know, the funding. Whenever I have the opportunity to speak to high level participants and negotiators, I always say that young people need three things. First, they need skills training. They need to learn about the energy sector. 
And secondly, they also need the funding. A lot of young people want to have access to education, access to capacity building, but they need scholarships. They need organizations and funds to promote young people and help them get to universities to receive proper training if we're thinking about them entering the energy workforce. Lastly, I think that engagement and participation has to be a continuous process. So reflecting particularly on the topic of energy, how much focus has there been? It's interesting how just the fact that Energy Day was placed in the second week shows that this is not a priority for the country hosting the conference. So I really wish that you know next year the UAE will um, place the Energy Day in the first week, in the first few days, so that we have more people to listen to these discussions. I will say that in this COP, uh, what I see as a, a positive outcome is that they have been trying to frame a lot more the discussion around the just energy transition, which I had not seen in previous COPs. So there's this big interlinkage of how are we going to bring these voices to the discussions and how we're going to uh, make an easier transition on the jobs that are going to be lost and the type of green jobs that we're looking for the future and how to engage young people, how to also support women, not only in the energy workforce, but also as energy consumers. I have not seen big commitments coming in the sense of committing funds to address the energy gap, which is, you know, again, our SDG 7 targets are the deadline is coming by 2030. And I have not seen a lot of that. Arguably, this is one of the last chances to keep 1.5 alive. And is that something that you think has really come across? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I think this is one of the things that has been mentioned more than once in the negotiations, but also within all the spaces here. I think that it has been also brought up to our attention that 1.5 is likely not possible anymore. It's not feasible. So we're looking to a 1.7 degree Celsius scenario in the next couple of years. And according to the IPCC, we will very likely reach the, the 1.5 degrees of warming by 2040. So this is definitely a scenario the next generation of young people will be most affected by climate change that makes us desperate. Um, so this is why we come to these spaces and we have been trying and trying to be in touch with our governments and with the private sector, really almost begging for, for immediate changes because countries are not uh, setting forth ambitious NDCs. We're not seeing the same ambition that we once saw at COP21 during the Paris Agreement negotiations. And that is just, you know, I think something that has to immediately change. So we're speaking to you while COP is still underway. Uh, as you leave Egypt, how hopeful are you feeling about the future? Uh, South Africa and Indonesia have both announced very robust plans for phasing out coal in their countries, which are heavily dependent on it. I would say that this is, you know, one of the biggest outcomes of this COP. I think more countries are also going to announce their just energy transition programs very soon. And I think that this is one of the things that gives me hope. I'm seeing that more and more countries are committed to funding this decarbonization in emerging markets. And I think that this just has to happen much faster. I do think that for the loss and damage discussions and for adaptation, which is which were meant to be the main the center of the discussions this year, I think we have been very successful and that gives me hope. I have never seen such a great representation of Pacific Islanders at COP. I think this is incredible. And I think that COPs are for this. They're not just for negotiation, but they're also a space where civil society can bring their thoughts 
can bring what happens locally and how they are at the forefront of climate change in their own countries and communities and bringing these stories to the negotiators attention is very important. Um, I'm very scared that international cooperation is being compromised by what's happening currently, what's happening now in Europe. And I really hope that more and more bilateral cooperation, multilateral cooperation is going to bring countries closer and closer. Eduardo Zogby, thank you so much for all your thoughts. My final guest today is Andrea Bonsani from AITA, also known as the International Emissions Trading Association. Andrea, welcome. Thanks, Julia. Great to be here. So listen, I'm going to ask you a similar question that I've asked all the other guests, which is I'm really curious about your role at COP27 and the role of AITA as well. Sure. I'll start with the role of AITA. AITA is a membership organization. We have almost 300 businesses and members. And we promote carbon markets as an effective solution to climate change for our members. So throughout the two weeks of COP, we have a stand, we write side events, we disseminate knowledge, and we promote an exchange between governments and the private sector on carbon markets and climate change. Specifically within AITA, my role is to track as closely as possible the negotiations on Article 6. Article 6 is the article of the Paris Agreement that is looking to establish market-based cooperative frameworks among countries. So I go as an observer to the negotiation rooms, I report back to members, and I try and contribute to the process during the side events and the interaction I have with AITA members and government representatives. Before the conference, we spoke to David Hone, Shell's chief climate change advisor, who said this. The most important thing continues to be the role of carbon credits and operationalizing Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And there's been a lot of discussion about a global carbon price. And Andrea, we hear you now talk about the global carbon markets. Could you just explain to the listeners what each of those are and how they relate particularly to Article 6? Carbon markets are one of the mechanisms to put a price on carbon emissions. Carbon pricing is considered as one of the most effective ways to uh, reduce carbon emissions by providing an incentive to uh, polluters, to emitters, to reduce them. Uh, By creating a market, there are projects that reduce emissions and can generate carbon credits that then can be bought by the emitters to compensate or offset the emissions that they find too costly to reduce or for which we have no technologies available to abate. So Article 6 is the article of the Paris Agreement that establishes a framework uh, for international carbon markets. Within Article 6, we have two uh, separate mechanisms. We have 6.4, which establishes a centralized crediting mechanism within the UN through which projects that demonstrate to reduce emission can obtain a credit that then can be traded in the market and used by, by countries towards their own objectives. And then we have Article 6.2. 6.2 provides a framework for countries to establish their own uh, market-based cooperative mechanisms through bilateral and multilateral agreements. And it's really interesting there you talk about sort of rules and frameworks and governance, if you like. And, and certainly when we interviewed David before COP27, uh, he was saying that, that you know, a rule book that was agreed at 
COP26 would be really vital uh, as we take it into COP27. And getting those mechanics into place are really essential. Did you see any development and negotiations around these aspects at COP27? Yes, there have been developments. Uh, we were coming from a landbound agreement uh, achieved at Glasgow. So the text from COP26 forms the basis of what carbon markets will look like going forward. But there are still uh, some more detailed rules, very important to make sure that carbon markets can be implemented, operationalized, that have been negotiated here in Sharm el Sheikh. So we reached an agreement on a number of items. There is still work uh, needed to fully operationalize from COP28 onwards. But now countries have what they need to go ahead and develop their own frameworks under Article 6.2. So uh, the attention is gradually shifting from the COP process to uh, key decisions that have to be made in the capitals by countries that want to implement carbon markets that take advantage of their benefits. And in our discussions, we've been really focusing on what this means for Africa. I'd love to get your thoughts about when it comes to operationalizing Article 6 for Africa. What does that mean? Well, there's great potential in carbon markets for Africa. Uh, this goes down to basic economic theory. Uh, African countries, most of them at least, have a large availability of low-cost mitigation options, but they do not have the capital and the technology needed to achieve these reductions. Article 6 provides a link with this, between these countries and other countries in the global north that no longer have action to cheaper uh, abatement options, but have wide availability of capital and technology. So Article 6 provides the framework for African countries to attract capital and investment in emission reduction projects by allowing the transfer of the outcome of these mitigations to uh, richer countries that are financing these reductions. Researchers have estimated that a full implementation of Article 6 can mobilize up to 250 billion US dollars per year by 2030 and up to 1 trillion by 2050. These are huge figures and they tend to be primarily private sector funds from the global north to the global south, which is exactly what we need to uh, fight climate change in an effective manner. So to untap these investments, uh, there needs to be proper regulatory framework in place, both at the UN level and in countries. So, Andrew, it's been great to hear your thoughts about the role of governments and what they can do in the context of operationalizing Article 6. I'm curious about the private sector and also the role of NGOs. What role do you see that they have to play? Well, government sets the rule, the framework, but then it's the private sector that develops the projects that reduce emission. It's the private sector that finance them and then buys the credit that are generated in carbon markets. So the private sector has a key role to play in this. NGOs also play a key sector by participating in the projects, but in some cases they can also be project developers themselves and obtain the credits that are then used to finance their activity. So already we're beginning to think about COP28 to be hosted in the United Arab Emirates. I'm curious about your views about why it will be so significant. And also, what do we need to focus on? What has to be done between now and then? In the Sharm el-Sheikh decision, there is a long list of items that the UN Secretariat and delegates need to work through uh, during 2023. We hope that we'll make progress on these items, which are fairly technical in nature, around reporting, around methodologies, but they're very, very important to allow market mechanisms to go ahead. And what uh, the private sector is particularly interested on 
is an operationalization of the credit mechanism under 6.4. This will allow projects to obtain credits for uh, their certified emission reductions, and these credits can be traded in a global market and have a UN stamp on it that will uh, show that they are of uh, good enough quality, good enough integrity for compliance purposes. And this is what will really unlock up to hundreds of millions of investment every year in emission reduction projects. Andrea, it's been great to have you on the show. Really thinking about carbon markets, what they are, why they matter, how we must collaborate and each play our part in them, and also what we should focus on and what we might expect at COP28 next year. Andrea Bozzani, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I have really enjoyed this podcast. Four different guests, four very different points of view. We've heard about the power of collaboration, consensus and coalition. We've talked about their need for accountability and commitment behind innovation and also the dynamics of capital and investment. My thanks to Eduardo Zogby, Rebecca Shirley, Susan Shannon and Andrea Bonsani. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. And if you've missed any of the episodes in this or indeed previous series, they're all available to download for free wherever you get your podcasts. The Energy Podcast is a fresh air production. And I must remind you that the views you've heard today from individuals not affiliated with Shell are their own and not Shell PLC or its affiliates. I'm Julia Street. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.